Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we have a really tragic story to tell you. Excited to get to talk about it, though, because I feel like there's going to be a lot of learning opportunities and things that we can kind of pull out of it. Also, my guest host, you all know, know I love when this happens. My guest host happens to be the Good Nurse. So I'm super excited about that. Kelly Tuttle. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Tina. Glad to be here. Absolutely glad to have you. Kelly is a nurse practitioner and author of a book called After the Crash. She had a traumatic brain injury and she had this whole journey going from someone who was working just at the top of her field and as a nurse and then having this traumatic brain injury, you can imagine having to go through all of that recovery process and now she's right back in it. So I cannot wait to get to talk to you about your book, Kelly, and kind of get into some of the the things that you've experienced, because I know there are going to be people that are listening to this, because I've done stories before about traumatic brain injuries. And I know that people always message me afterwards and say, Oh, I, I had a traumatic brain injury or my son or, and so I feel like it's always great to take opportunities like this to help educate people about them, especially nurses working at the bedside, but everybody, anybody can benefit from understanding what TBIs, you know, what they mean for the person who's suffering from it and the long-term consequences and just how to deal with them, you know, long-term. So super excited to get to talk to you about that. Well, I'm glad to be here to be able to share my story. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more and, of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. Well, I guess we can get started though with this this bad doc. It's another bad doctor. I know I do a, a lot of doctors and I, I apologize for that. Do- doctors that don't necessarily do more bad things. I think that the news media tends to 
pull them out. So they they really kind of stick out like a sore thumb when it comes to people doing criminal acts or you know something wrong because it's so shocking. You know, we see doctors, we kind of put them up on a pedestal, kind of forget that they're human and that they can make mistakes, that they can make bad decisions, that they can actually be bad people even. So this is another situation where we have a, a, a physician who definitely made made some bad choices here and is going to be you know paying the consequences for for those. So this is the story of plastic surgeon Jeffrey Kim. So we're going to start off talking about we like to do this talk about the victim as much as we can. So Emmalyn Yuen, an 18-year-old high school graduate from Colorado. She was a victim of medical malpractice that unfortunately led to her tragic death. On August the 1st in 2019, a relatively recent case, she visited the Colorado Aesthetic and Plastic Surgery for a breast augmentation procedure, hoping to bolster her self-image. First of all, oh, that's sad. That really is, to me, very tragic the, the, to think of an 18-year-old girl, any anyone, feeling like they needed to do that. Um, but an 18-year-old, you know, thinking that she needed that to bolster her image was just, to me, tragic. I don't know. It just makes me sad, Kelly. I don't know why. I, I just feel like sometimes our society just puts the emphasis in the wrong places, you know? Yes. Yeah, that, this really hit home for me because my oldest is 20, you know, and I would really be saddened if she felt she had to do something like this type of surgery to feel more comfortable in her skin or to have more confidence. It really surprises me that women would put themselves in that kind of pain and discomfort for this type of an elective surgery. I mean, it's bad enough when you have to have a surgery, but to choose this type of surgery, and I've had friends that have had it and the stories of how painful it is. It's like, wow. And the thing is, it's, it is everyone's choice. If they would, if they're, if you're going to feel better about yourself by doing it, if you have the money to do it and you are willing to take the risk of death. A lot of people die from elective surgeries. It is obviously your choice. And I would not want to take that choice away from you. And I don't even want to make, I don't want to make you feel bad for doing it either. But there's something about an 18 year old girl that it's hard for me to understand. You know, I think it's the whole idea of self image. It's the way she saw herself that bothers me probably more than anything, you know, that I feel like there's a societal issue here at play, you know, that, that, that went a long way to making her feel like she needed something like this. But having said that, everyone has the right to do whatever they feel like they want to do. I mean, I color my hair. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe I shouldn't care that (laughs) if my hair is colored or not, you know, or maybe so you could, you could make a, an argument for literally anything. Why do I even comb my hair? Why do I care what anybody thinks, how I look? So, but when it, when it comes Mm -hmm. to having someone literally cutting you open and making these alterations that will change your body for the, forever. There is no going back to the way you were before. You know, things things are going to be different and there, there are complications that can come from it. So I just hope that people, you know, think them through carefully. And I, it's hard for me to imagine an 18-year-old being able to really make the decision and understand what they're doing. You know, they're so young. I just feel like they're still... 
I mean, to me, they're still children. I have an 18-year-old son, so he he's very much my little boy still. So people are listening. You yeah. know, people in, in Europe are probably rolling their eyes and going, what are you talking about? But I know that you're technically an adult, obviously, but also your decision-making, it, it comes along, you know, it develops a little bit later, a few years later, as far as just like being able to kind of see into the future, the consequences of, of your actions. Um, I don't know. Anyway, didn't mean to get all bogged down into that, but that stuck out just right away of how unnecessary, how absolutely unnecessary yeah. this really was. So things definitely took a, a turn for the worse when Emmeline fell into a coma after receiving anesthesia and never regained consciousness. So the idea of, quote, falling into a coma, it's she did. So she was put under, you know, anesthesia. The There was a CRNA there who administered anesthesia to cause her to be unconscious. So it's not as if she went unconscious and wasn't supposed to. She was not supposed to be conscious for, you know, this procedure. The problem is she never regained consciousness. The medical staff administering the procedure, including Dr. Jeffrey Kim, the plastic surgeon, and nurse anesthetist Rex Meeker, reportedly left Emmeline unattended for 15 minutes post-anesthesia. So they administered the anesthesia and then left the room for 15 minutes. I can't even imagine. I've been in surgeries before. I've not been a surgical nurse, but I've been in there to observe several times. That uh, nurse anesthetist or the anesthesiologist that's over there, you know, behind the curtain, that's their only job is to literally sit there and monitor all of their vital signs and monitor, monitor all of the levels that they're everything that they're getting. And is, if they see things changing, they have to monitor the amount of, of, of medication that they're getting. So it's really hard for me to understand how in the world they could have thought this was appropriate. I know. I thought that was really weird when I read that because back in the day, which was, <laughs> was a long time ago, I used to work as a registered nurse in the emergency room, and we would do procedures that required conscious sedation. So that's not when your patient is fully put under a lichen surgery and they need a airway tube to keep breathing and so forth. It's a more of a, I wouldn't say it's mild. I don't mean when it's mild that it's not serious and that it, you should not have the appropriate licensures of providers around you when you have that procedure. I'm just saying as compared to surgery, full surgery. So conscious sedation, it utilizes medications that help relax the patient so that they're comfortable during the procedure, but they're usually able to maintain their airway. And back in the day, and I'm not sure if this has changed, you had to take vital signs every at least 15 minutes, it might have changed now. You know, I'm talking 20 plus years ago when I was in the emergency room. And so reading that these people mm. left this person for 15 mm. minutes, I wouldn't even take my eyes off my patients when they had conscious sedation. But to yeah. leave the room for any amount of time is unconscionable. Yeah. It is still standard, that 15-minute monitoring Every 15 minutes, if you're administering, you know, something like midazolam, some kind of medication like that, that you're going to push at the bedside, it is absolutely unconscionable to, to administer medications. Like what, I don't know what they were giving the, whatever it was, if it's for sedation, you should not be leaving the bedside. 
I think one of them was fentanyl. I'm sure it was. I wouldn't at all be surprised. That's what I read. I was reading that there was like combination of medications, including fentanyl. I was like, yeah, wow. I'm not at all surprised. You know, that's a very common one that, that I've seen, I've used many times. So no, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. But during that time, during that 15 minute period, her lips and face turned blue, signaling, of course, a, a serious medical emergency. And despite Emmeline's critical condition, it was reported that Kim and Meeker waited five hours to call 911. They did not immediately inform her parents about the incident. Emma suffered severe brain damage during this episode and was left in a vegetative state. She was transferred to a nursing home where she relied on a feeding tube for sustenance until she passed away on October the 4th in 2020. So I, when you when you talk about a tragic, tragic case on so many levels, this was unnecessary. But when you you have medical professionals that were right there that saw what was going on and waited five hours. I can't even, it, 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 when I first came across this story, I really thought that it was, I thought it was wrong. I thought there's no way that this is really how this happened. There has to be another explanation. There is no way that that many health because it wasn't just the doctor and the, and the, uh, the nurse anesthetist. There were other healthcare professionals there as well, and no one, no one called nine one one. To think about her laying there in that condition, you know, it, it this happened August of two thousand nineteen. She passed away October of twenty twenty. So over a year, she was in this this state of I've taken care of many, many patients like this when I worked on PCU at, at the hospital where I worked. And it's one of the saddest things that you'll ever see, you know, someone who maybe was in a car accident or just some, had maybe a fall. And they're, they lost enough oxygen to their brain for too long of a time, maybe, maybe even a heart attack. And mm-hmm. they maybe have been, maybe they have a trach, um, that on a ventilator and you're having to, they're literally just getting liquid food through a peg tube that goes right into their, into their stomach. And that's their only life. You, you don't even communicate with them. The ones that I've taken care of, I think that there can be all levels, but what I imagine her condition was, was that she wasn't able to really communicate and, and she did end up passing away. What a horrible, horrible death for her and a horrible, unimaginable experience for her family. Yeah, definitely. I feel my heart really goes out to the family. So after her passing, legal proceedings were initiated against Dr. Kim and Doc, uh, and Meeker. On February 16th of 2022, the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office obtained an arrest warrant for Dr. Kim, who faced ch- charges of first-degree aggravated assault and reckless manslaughter. Meeker was also charged with reckless manslaughter. So he was the nurse anesthetist. He's the one actually administering it. But, you know, there's a lot of question here. You know, when you think about, he is the expert at anesthesia. He's He literally went to school for two years to only learn about anesthesia. You know, he was a nurse before and then got his master's in this, in specifically anesthesia. And they are so incredibly intelligent. I've been around so many of them, perfectly capable, amazing professionals. But they are the expert. He is the expert. However, in this setting, Dr. Kim is the physician. And so he is actually overseeing 
the CRNA. And to me, it honestly doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You have someone overseeing the CRNA who is her, their specialty is not anesthesia. So I don't, Meeker is going to know more about anesthesia than Dr. Kim. And I know the general public, they don't understand this. They think a doctor knows everything about everything. And yeah, they may learn a little bit of, they may learn a little bit about everything going through medical school. But when they get out you know, and they go through the residency, they pick a specialty and then they learn that. And then all the other stuff, it may be in there somewhere, but it's kind of in the, you know, like any job anybody does, that stuff kind of gets pushed back and also things change. Evidence-based practice changes. And so if you haven't been, if you're, if that's not your specialty, you you don't, you don't really need to be making decisions <laughs> when it comes to, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think people don't get that. People don't understand. Right. Yeah. A lot, you know, there's this, you know, I think that people think like if you see a certain doctor, they're going to know everything or a nurse is going to know everything. And the truth is, is that a nurse is not a nurse is not a nurse, not a nurse. You know, if you have a nurse who has trained as a pediatric nurse, they're going to have a different skill set and competency than a nurse who is an adult emergency room nurse or a nurse who works in surgery or in oncology. I mean, there's a lot of knowledge needed and experience and training in all those areas, but that doesn't mean that they know everything. And it's kind of the same with doctors, like, you know, you would not want to go to a neurologist who takes care of your brain for your heart. And (laughs) that may not turn out so well. And, you know, your general practitioner may know a lot of a little bit of stuff, but they, once you get above and beyond that basic kind of level or that general knowledge that they have, they're going to be referring you off to the specialist, right? And even in neurology, we have doctors and myself, we take care of patients with epilepsy, but there's doctors out there who specialize in epilepsy. They're an epileptologist. And so I, and then knowing the difference of the specialties, whether it's psychiatry or neurology or a physical medicine rehab doctor, um, the layperson um, isn't going to uh, know uh, that there's a big difference. And um, that's kind of like one of the things I write in my book is like, when you have this symptom, you should see the specialist because I'm trying to break down that knowledge barrier. Um, and with the uh, my videos and so forth that I create is I'm trying to educate everyone about the different roles each uh, person plays in the sphere of what I'm talking about, but of course you could probably do a whole podcast well, really? on the healthcare That's specialists so true. out there. I, and I, I do, I try to use these stories to take the opportunities to educate people about all the different, you know, nuances and the different situations that, that arise in healthcare, whether it's helping to educate other nurses, you know, other, you know, colleagues or, or just the general public and just discussing this this stuff so that it just brings it to light. And that is one of the things that, that I definitely wanted to bring out of this. And that is that a doctor is not a doctor is not a doctor. A nurse is not a nurse is not a nurse. Exactly what you said. Once you drill into a specialty, that's, that's your specialty. And you, 
you might be able to switch specialties and learn about something else, or you may even be able to dabble a little bit in like a secondary thing. But you you know, when it comes to especially something like anesthesia and putting someone under like that for surgery, you want somebody that is an expert in that. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So during the trial, several medical staffers testified that they had asked for permission to call 911, but Dr. Kim had refused Also, Dr. Kim was accused of misleading Emmeline's mother by reassuring her that her daughter was merely taking a long time to wake up from anesthesia. The case concluded with Dr. Kim being found guilty of attempted reckless manslaughter and obstruction of telephone service. However, he was acquitted of the more serious charge of negligent homicide. Kim's defense attorneys shifted the blame onto Meeker, claiming it was his administration of the anesthesia that led to Emmeline's death. Meeker later surrendered his license and charges against him were dropped. So he did give up his license. And I, I, I do think in, in this situation, I personally believe that if, if you, that nurse practitioners, CRNAs, if you have proven your ability, if you've been, you've had the education, you've had enough hours underneath someone else qualified, like another CRNA, another nurse practitioner or, or a physician, whatever, a qualified person, you've had enough hours under them that you should not have to be under the oversight of a physician. And that's just what I believe. I, I don't, I, I think it's completely unnecessary. It makes no sense in so many situations. In this situation, it made no sense. If it's that necessary to have a physician over the CRNA, it should have been an anesthesiologist, not a plastic surgeon who really doesn't know anything about sedation or doesn't know enough about sedation, you know. So that's my personal opinion. And I know a lot of people differ, you know, in in that opinion. And it's different. It differs state to state, the regulations. But I, I've done enough research into this, and I'm not a nurse practitioner. I don't have any intention of being a nurse practitioner, but I see nurse practitioners for myself. And I know that in a lot of cases, physicians are making money on this. They make thousands of dollars a month by just signing off on charts for nurse practitioners who are doing all the work. And they really aren't looking at the information that's in the charts. Not all of them. That is not true for everyone. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't want to make a blanket statement statement, but that's very common for that to happen. And I, 
it makes no sense to me. Either you know what you're doing and you know how to how to diagnose and prescribe and take care of patients at that level, or you don't. And if if you do, then and and you've and you've had that you know experience. I I want to emphasize that how important it is to me that they have the the amount of experience sort of equal to a, a medical doctor getting out of medical school and then doing a residency. You know, you need to have that that experience under your belt to be able to be on your own, I, I believe, but it could be under another nurse practitioner, it could be under a PA, it could be some qualified person that's in the field that you're going to be going into. It's a huge soapbox for me. It's kind of a big topic in the state that I live in, in Tennessee. It, it comes up every year in the legislature trying to pass full pa- full practice authority for nurse practitioners. And, you know, it's sort of a kind of a touchy subject because a lot of the doctors and the, the, the hospital associations and the, the, physician associations they're against it yeah yeah well the with this with this case you know the nurse anesthetist looking to the physician for approval to call 911 is just inappropriate that's just wrong nurses registered nurses and advanced practice nurses we all practice under our own license and Unlike a lot of medical licenses, our license, uh, and I could speak to my license in California, is that we are a part of our license in the um, language of our practice, our Nursing Practice Act, is that we are advocates for the patient. Not a lot of health providers have that in their license, but nurses do. So all of us, registered nurses, nurse practitioners, advanced practice nurses, we have an obligation to advocate to the patient. That is the basics of our license to practice. And that is why people are really surprised when they hear the registered nurse speak up and say to a physician or a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner, I am not going to give that medication because X, Y, and Z, it's going to hurt. It's going to harm the patient. Registered nurses, a lot of people don't realize this, but registered nurses are your last hope. They are the last line of safety in healthcare because they are obligated to protect the patient based on their licensure. And they have to have that knowledge to make that decision if that therapy or that medication is safe for you. And for a nurse to look to a physician based with that knowledge that I have and my practice as an RN and a nurse practitioner, looking to a doctor to call 911, it just blows my mind that that is even anything. Nurses and doctors, we need to and do so work as team members. And when things go wrong, everyone knows their role. And to who starts the compressions, who calls 911, who runs and gets the AED if you're in outpatient setting or the crash cart if you're in inpatient setting. And there's not this looking for approval. It's this teamwork. How are we going to take care of this patient? That's how it should work. I don't know why these people didn't say, no, I'm going to call 911 or, you know, go into an office, lock the door, call 911. Immediately when you see someone blue, call 911, especially when you're in that outpatient setting. 
anybody who sees someone go down goes down in public, we call 911. You don't have to be in a hospital to know when to activate the emergency medical yeah. system. So I don't I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak to that thinking process. But I do know people in a crowd or a group will freeze and they'll see something horrific and they'll think someone else is going to take over or take care of business. Or they doubt their own judgment. They think, well, no one else is doing anything. No one else is, is, is and, and they're afraid of being humiliated. They're afraid of being seen as being overly dramatic. They are afraid of losing their job. I mean, the, Dr. Kim was their boss. This is the, the setting. He is the boss. It's not like in a hospital where you can go above the physician's head and go to your manager, hit that, that physician's manager, or go to the house supervisor or someone. You, I feel like in a hospital, there's always someone you can reach out to to go over the, the physician or the nurse practitioner's head who's right there at the moment that you're kind of butting heads with. And in this situation, I get, I've never worked in this setting, so it's hard for me to know. It's very different for me. I, I don't know what it was like. I think it is probably easy to Monday, you know, Monday morning quarterback the situation and say, but it's, it's really difficult for me to imagine myself not, you know, just insisting and just, but I've kind of have a reputation for being that kind of a person anyway, when I'm working, I, 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 when I'm at work, I am quiet and I just do, I do my job. I don't, you're not going to hear a lot from me. I I tend to just keep my head down and do my job. But when you will hear from me (laughs) is when something is going on that should not be going on or someone is, you know, a patient is not being attended to that should be attended to. That is when I will speak up and I will make, you know, just, I'll make a fuss because I if I really believe something, you know, in my heart about something, I'm I'm not going to let I'm not going to let off. And so I I think I can imagine myself in this situation. I hope I would have done what was right and and just said no. She she just you know went into cardiac arrest. We are absolutely calling. Uh, don't even ask. Like there's there is no asking permission. You just do it. You know, if there is a policy that you have to ask permission to call nine one one, that's that should literally be illegal. You should not be able to make a policy in a setting like that that someone has to a- ask permission to be able to call nine one one. I'm not saying that was the case, but it should be based on your your personal clinical judgment. And each person is you're you're an individual. You have your own license. You have your own knowledge and set of skills that you are responsible for for using if you take on that responsibility. And when you, you know, I think a lot of people maybe in outpatient settings think that there's less responsibility because it is an outpatient setting. And so you think there's going to be less liability, you know, because, well, well it's, it's, these procedures are, are done every day and all day long and it, and nothing ever happens. And, until it does, you know, so very important to be responsible, you know, take accountability. Yes. And I agree that the looking back, the 2020 vision is really, is really not fair to do because we weren't there, you know, but knowing that your listeners can definitely learn from this is there's two things 
that you brought up. One, yes, if you stand up and you speak up, you can get fired. But you know what? You won't lose your license, your li- your livelihood, your ability to practice, and you may save a life in doing so. I'm not saying getting fired is, any, is fun and is not a horrible to go through, but for nurses, it's, I know it's scary to stand up when you're needing your job. But with that being said, keep in mind that if you don't, you could lose your license and your livelihood. And you need to think about you, your patient, and your livelihood to be able to continue to be a caregiver. And that should be the first. And then worry about how you're judged after you have yeah. cared for your patient. I, you know, so many times in healthcare, we can be so hard on each other. You know, I've, I've seen many times that lateral bullying sort of that goes on when someone does try to speak up and say something, you know, like, hey, we're not supposed to do it that way. Wait, we're not supposed to crush those meds and put them through the peg tube. Or you're supposed to do those one at a time. And you're not supposed to mix them all together. What if you spill it, you know, and then everybody else does it this other way. And so then that person gets bullied because they're trying to do, they're trying to follow pr- the procedure correctly. And I've, I've seen that happen many times. I've probably been on the end, even on the side of it, that was like, okay, you're, you're taking that way too far. There's literally no way we could do our job if we tried to, to follow every single, you know, every single procedure rule and law you 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 would never get all your you could never get everything done if you tried to do that hospitals give you way too many patients to be able to to handle all of that that stuff so you have to choose the things that are important to you and that's that's scary and and sad all at the same time the fact that there are all these regulations and all these rules and all these best practices that they will throw in your face if you don't do them, because, hey, it's right here in black and white. Lippincott says you're supposed to do wait 15 minutes after administering this medication. And, you you know, you're supposed to crush this med and in, individually, you know, all of these 30 pills <laughs> individually and put them one at a time in that peg tube, even though that would literally mean putting 60 cc's of extra fluid into the patient that wasn't supposed to get it, you know, it's just situations like that, where people are having to, you know, you're having to use your judgment, but if something happens, they will hold that policy up and say, you didn't, you didn't follow the policy. And it, and what are you supposed to do? Well, I know, but I couldn't follow the policy. I can't follow every single policy. It's impossible. And that that's what can be really frustrating sometimes, especially when you work at the bedside, because at the bedside, there are so many rules, there's so many warnings, there's so many just beeping, alarms, just everything. Everything is beeping, everything is red, everything is alarming. And so when, when I hear stories of, you know, people are, are giving a nurse a hard time who made a mistake that had to override, that had to, that bypassed warning after warning after warning after warning, yep, yeah, do it every day. We do it every day. It's that's how you do your job, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in hospitals. That is expected. If you tried to literally pay attention to every single warning, you would not be able to do your job. And hospitals know this. They absolutely know it. But they also know they they know they're creating alarm fatigue. They know they're creating alarm fatigue. 
They don't care. They don't care that the alarm fatigue is being detrimental to the patient. That does not mean anything. All they care about is put another alarm in there. That way, if something happens, it's the nurse's fault because he or she did not listen to the alarm. And that's unfortunately the way it is. And when you have a situation, you know, like this, where you have multiple people who are who are knowledgeable and skilled, it's so easy to kind of like look at each other and go, you don't want to be the, you know, you don't want to be the one. You don't want to be the one who goes, okay, imagine, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation in where you're the, you're kind of like, the expert in that situation. Maybe you're you're with a bunch of new grads and you're, you look around and you're like, oh man, I'm the senior person here. Or you're out and out and about and somebody's having a medical emergency and you're just looking around and go, please tell me there is somebody else here who is, I don't want to be the one. I don't want to be responsible. I don't, you know, that is what happens in these circum in these cases where everybody's looking at each other like, I don't want to you know, I don't want to just stand up here and go, I know more than everybody else in this room. But unfortunately, that's, that's kind of the responsibility that you're taking on when you choose that role, you have to be willing to step up and advocate for that patient in those circumstances. If you see something like that, you have to be think about it. If you take on a job like that, if you're not willing to do that, then don't take the job. And that's just don't don't work in a setting like that where something like that could go wrong because it is your responsibility and you will be held accountable. One of the things that I like to in, encourage is something I learned in martial arts. I studied martial arts for several years and their teaching was learn to act instead of react. And I have been in those uncomfortable situations that you were talking about, Tina. And how like a new grad or someone who may not have experience, you know, being in a code or, or let's say a, a bullying, like someone saying something inappropriate to you or a patient maybe starts punching and kicking. They've never had that experience, but they know that it's possible down the road that they could is to think, this is what we do as martial artists. We we think of our everyday routine and the things that can happen or go wrong, like say someone approaching us or following us to our car, what would we do? And that's what I really encourage like new nurses to think about. Like if this, start thinking on your own, if this happens to me and I'm in this situation, one, what is my goal that I want to accomplish? And two, how would I accomplish that goal? And so when I think about it, I think, okay, the goal that I want to accomplish is I want to be the one to call 911, start the CPR. And I start seeing this in my mind, what I'm going to, in this situation, I'm going to do this. And then this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, get in my car. I'm going to lock my door. I'm going to throw the key immediately into the ignition. And then I'm going to start driving. If um, someone, whether someone grabs my door or not, you know, you have to play these kind of things in your mind. There was a, a nurse who was in the parking lot at one of the facilities I was working at. Someone pulled behind them. So they blocked the nurse from leaving and they went up to the window, pointed a gun and stole her purse. 
And I thought about that situation. I'm like, well, what would I do? I'm not judging what that person did. They survived. They did the right thing. But what would I do? How could I make sure I was more safe? And so my decision was if I see someone pull up behind me, come to my window, and another person come to my window, I'm going to drive straight forward. I'm going to hit the car in front of me, the tree, my bags are going to go off, my car alarm's going to go off, the car in front of me is going to go, or I'm going to be able to exit. And that's my plan. So if it ever happens, I'm ready to act, not react. And so that's what I would encourage. Think about your job. What if there is this? What if that happens? What's your goal? And then how are you going to accomplish that goal? And then there's less of getting caught in that situation of, of freezing. And as a nurse, you're the leader in the room. So you really need to be that person to say, things are hitting the fan. Let's take care of yeah, it. And that you would hope that that's, you know, that would, it, it, it really depends on the dynamic that's set, you know, the, the personality of the clinic of the office. If the doctor is one of, you know, kind of has a personality that I run the show and doesn't respect nurses for their knowledge and their abilities and their skill level and their education and just tends to put them in a more administrative role or kind of in a, like you really don't have any clinical judgment to play, you know, here. I could see the nurse, you know, nurses, not the nurse anesthetists, not I, I'm, I'm not letting him off the hook, but the nurse, the nurses that are <laughs> that are just there, maybe, you know, I don't know if they even start IVs, because I bet the CRNA does that, but just doing their, their nursing tasks, whatever they are, I, I just I don't work in the setting again. So it's hard for me to imagine what, what that role is. But still, as a as a healthcare professional, as a as a licensed professional, you know, you you have a responsibility, you are putting yourself in a position that, you know, if at the very least, you're going to have that second victim syndrome that can happen when you are in a situation where some because of your lack of action, because of a mistake that you make, or your inaction or, or poor judgment, uh, there's a death that can cause that second victim syndrome where you, you know, you are so incredibly damaged, you know, mentally and emotionally that you never recover from it. And that I've done stories about those situations and they're, it's, they're so sad. So many times you, you, you almost don't want to talk about that because it's not really fair. The person they made it, they made a mistake and this person died. Why would you want to talk about the person that made the mistake? This person's dead. Look at what they did to their family. <laughs> you have to analyze these situations and think about you know, the, the repercussions of, of these situations. So don't think that just because you're working in these outpatient settings, you know, that it's all responsibility is off of you. It's, you know, this is a sad situation. I'm, I'm not in any way, you know, trying to judge anyone other than I have to say, you know, the, the doctor and really the CRNA, they should have known better. They should not have let her lay there for five hours without helping her without immediately helping her. It was just completely uncalled for. I don't know. I, it's really inexplicable. I don't understand it. And when I think about the nurse, you know, in Nashville who made the medication error that that resulted in that horrific death of that, that patient who was going through a PET scan. Oh, Rhonda. Yeah, Redonda Vaught. Yeah. Redonda comparing Vaught. the mm-hmm. two, he was not convicted of negligent homicide. And she was. So I'm just thinking, you know, she really was completely clueless about at least 
the fact that she had harmed someone. She did not just, you know, choose to not try to help her in that situation or try to cover it up or try to hide it or hope that it would just go away somehow. And yet, you know, she she was convicted. And, uh, you know, that that's, to me, that's kind of what happens. It's it's a luck of the draw. You don't know. You don't know what what a jury's going to do. You don't know. And he has not been sentenced yet. So this verdict, I think, you know, it definitely brought some closure to Emmeline's family. They expressed that they didn't feel justice was fully served. The family had previously filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Dr. Kim and Meeker in December of 2019, which was settled in June of 2021, with both parties agreeing to pay a million dollars each in damages. A million dollars is nothing when it comes to a life, you know, a a young 18-year-old girl, you know, is gone. Her family will have this huge gaping wound in their family forever. Will never, you know, that's never going to heal. It just seems like, mm-hmm. just seems like nothing, a million dollars, you know, each. But at least they had to. At least there was some, something to to make to hold them accountable. The criminal charges against Dr. Kim and Meeker marked a significant turn in the case, adding another layer to the legal consequences of medical malpractice. Dr. Kim is facing up to three years in prison and he is scheduled to be sentenced on September the 8th. Emmeline's case is definitely, it's a tragic reminder of the critical role and the trust and responsibility that we have, that the public places in us. There's so many times they don't, they have no idea what goes on behind closed doors. They do not understand what happens when they're completely under, when, when your family is on the other side of that, that door, that wall, the curtain or whatever it is, they don't know what's going on. They are trusting you. They're trusting you to use your knowledge and advocate for them as a nurse. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And they don't see how many times the nurse had to correct something that could have harmed them. They don't see the difficult conversations these nurses have with Mm -hmm. their nurse managers regarding their patient load and safety. They don't see the nurse being diminished or abused by a physician because they had stood up and asked for something for the patient. The public does just doesn't see that. And, you know, Tina, like you were saying, the the job at the bedside is is impossible. And, you know, a lot of people hear about a nursing shortage, but it's not a nursing shortage. There's 4 million nurses, registered nurses in this country. There's just a shortage of nurses willing to work under those conditions because they don't want to see their patients harmed. They don't want to lose their license. They don't want to lose their livelihood because they're assaulted all the time by patients and the family members of patients. People don't realize that. And the workload is impossible. It is not possible. At least, you know, in California, we have uh, patient nurse ratios and those save lives and they save money. And what I hear about what nurses are going through, it's just heartbreaking. And and then a lot of people say, well, you know, it's the pandemic, but no, the problem was exist the problem was an issue years before the pandemic. And the pandemic only just inflamed a festering wound. Yeah, it certainly made it a whole lot worse, but it was already really bleak and bad. It was terrible before. Now it's, man, (laughs) to see some of these emergency rooms, the way they're spilling out into the 
onto the sidewalk sometimes. They can't, they don't even have room for them. And they're having beds in the hallway and they have literally numbering, you know, hallway one, hallway two, hallway three. They're, and these hospitals are just overflowing. They don't have room for ad- ad- admitting patients. And if you need a procedure, you can't find a doctor. You can't find a, a specialist. You can't find neurosurgeons. You can't find nephrologists. You can't find hematologists. They're just, where are they? Where is everyone? It's pretty bad right now. And, you know, in this particular case, I think, um, you know, MLN's family is hoping that their pursuit of justice, you know, in her memory will serve as a cautionary tale to prevent similar things like this from happening. And so that's why we wanted to talk about this story to honor her memory and to try to bring out all of the opportunities, you know, for education that we can to try to hopefully bring about change in her honor. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Well, I guess that kind of wraps it up for our for our bad nurse story, and we can get into the good nurse story. So Kelly, so again, I'll introduce you, Kelly Tuttle, nurse practitioner, author of the book, after the crash. Kelly, tell everyone your story. Had How did it come about that you wrote this book? What happened? So I had been working for 20 years in cardiology and I was driving home one evening and I was uh, a teenage driver had pulled out in front of me and I T-boned her and I was in a, a terrible car accident And a long story short, I ended up with a traumatic brain injury. And my goal after my traumatic brain injury was to get back to work as soon as possible and and to get back to life. But my biggest one was getting back to work. And after uh, being diagnosed with the post-concussive syndrome, 
And it took me three months to get diagnosed also. (laughs) That's another story. But (laughs) once I got diagnosed um, and into uh, speech therapy, physical therapy, and and seeing a neurotherapist and physical medicine rehab physician, I started looking for additional books and resources to help myself get better because I wanted to get back to work as soon as I could. And I found some really great books. I found um, books written for uh, 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 warriors, uh, the military, and I found uh, information on severe uh, brain injuries and severe to moderate brain injuries and a lot of stuff um, about kids and, and concussions. But there wasn't a lot of stuff for the, you know, just regular person, Joe, who was in a car accident and now wants to get back to work. And the few, the couple of books that I did get were really good. They were generalized, you know, just kind of generalized getting back into life. And I wanted something specific, like the tools and strategies I could utilize to get back to work. That's why I decided to write a book with the encouragement of a friend of mine. So I was talking to a friend one day on the phone and she was asking me how I was doing, how I was recovering. And I was telling her, I was reading all this stuff, you know, everything I could about getting better and lots of information about the brain and traumatic brain injuries. And I was really enjoying learning something new. And she said, you know, you should write, you should go into neurology you would be a great patient advocate because you've been there, you've done that. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a, I didn't have an idea of doing that initially. It was um, her, after her suggestion. And um, so I got really excited and read everything I had. I could get my hands on, on how to convert from cardiology nurse practitioner to neurology nurse practitioner. And I interviewed for jobs and I begged managers to give me a chance and the uh, training and finally got a job two years later in in neurology and did a bunch of training with the neurologists in the department and so forth. And when taking care of my patients, a few of them were traumatic brain injury survivors themselves. And I realized they didn't know the things that I wanted to know to keep working and and going uh, to school. So I decided to write a book that specifically talked about how to keep your job (laughs) after the crash, how to keep your job, stay in school and live life to the fullest after a brain injury. And I'm really proud of how the book came out. And that's how I ended up writing it. <laughs> it's needed. It's something that is is more education on this is definitely needed. TBIs are relatively common. I mean, think of all the auto accidents, but not just auto accidents, just the football players. So many people, you know, in other sports, too, yeah. can, you can have these. When, when we say traumatic brain injury, we're not necessarily talking about somebody that's whacked over the head with a bat. I mean, or, you know, has a gunshot wound. This could literally just my son was trying to go under a garage door as it was coming down and he he jumped trying to beat the sensor and went literally hit the bottom of the garage door as it was coming down and that's his trauma that's his tbi I and mean, it was a he had the, yeah. the worst seizure i've ever seen in my life it scared me to death he wasn't able to talk for mm. I, I was at work when it happened and he didn't immediately have this happen he, it, right away my my husband heard the sound of the garage door and he he was like are, 
what happened? Levi, are you okay? And and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And then they went to the grocery store and he said, Levi kept walking off from me. He kept walking off and he said, I, he, he was kind of annoyed with him. You know, Levi was like 10 at the time, 10 or 11. And so he, he, he he's always been kind of a prankster, just sort of like, you know, just Levi. I, I don't even know how to describe him, but he's just funny. And so Mark thought he was just goofing off being Levi. And he said at one point he started talking and he wasn't making any sense at all. And then he got home oh, no. and he kept saying, you know, he said, Levi, maybe you just need to go lay down. He really thought he was faking. He did not think that there was, that it had anything to do with the head injury. And then Joel, who's like five years older than Levi, so Joel would have been about 15 or so. He looked at his dad and said, I don't know. I think maybe, maybe you should go back there and check on him. I don't know. And so he went back there, he sat down in the bed, and he said, Levi, look at me. Now, I'm being serious. I need you to be 100%. Like, you look at me right now. I want you to say your alphabet. And you do it. Don't, don't be goofing off. And he started, he started saying the alphabet, and he could not get through. I mean, he just kind of like trailed off or something. And Mark was like, okay, let's get up. We're going to the hospital. And so they got in the truck. And he said, mm-hmm. I was going down the interstate and Levi started grabbing the door, trying to get out of the truck. And he didn't have his, he didn't have a seatbelt oh on because gosh. he's 10 years old. He can put his own seatbelt on. It didn't occur to Mark that he would not be able to put a seatbelt on, but he obviously couldn't put a seatbelt on. He didn't even know, he wasn't even, he just wasn't aware, you know, and Mark, it scared Mark to death. So that from hitting his head on a, like literally just like this, some more something you would think of as being just a benign, you know, bumped your head. Yeah, yeah. turned into a trip to the hospital, a, seeing a neurologist, trying to figure out what in the world's going on for two days. Could not communicate with us. Could not communicate with us. It was so scary. He would say words, and they would be all the wrong mm-hmm. words. We went home, mm-hmm. and then a few days later, he had a full blown tonic clonic seizure. Full blown, just straightened out and. We it scared us to death. Never seen him do anything like that before. I'd never even seen a seizure before. Called nine one one. Went back to the hospital. Same thing. He had this pretty extensive postictal stage, and then he when he came, kind of was started talking. He wasn't making any sense again. And it, it it's been years. And he's you know you would nobody would ever know. You know he's fully functional, but he definitely has these deficits that are kind of like I know it and he knows it. But he has to compensate. He knows he is terrible at multitasking because that was the part of the brain it was damaged. So he just cannot multitask. It's awful. I mean, it, it's it, it was really hard for him through school. We had to end up taking him out of school and basically doing an online school that he ha- where he had the control because there was that that whole classroom setting. There's no mm-hmm. way. There's absolutely no way. Too much oh, yeah. going on around him. And so I say all that to say, when we talk about TBIs, there's all levels and all kinds of things that you, you can't see a lot. Of, and they don't know a lot about the brain. You know, there's the brain is very mysterious. And even experts don't know. It and that's, that's child neurologist. That's what he said. He mm-hmm. said, we don't. He said, I know I'm supposed to know a lot about the brain. I can tell you right now, there's we don't know a lot about the brain. And I remember sitting there going, well, if you don't know, what are we supposed to do? Scary. Very scary. Right. Yeah. There's definitely a saying in the industry. It's if you see one TBI, you've seen (laughs) one TBI. 
Yes, everyone is different. It's amazing that it, it doesn't matter the impact, the situation. So it doesn't matter the impact or, or the situation of the of the traumatic brain injury. It just people's brains react differently. And I like I I tell my patients that because the first thing they're gonna they ask me is when am I gonna get better, and I tell them I really don't know because everyone's recovery is as different as their personality. And your, your road to recovery is going to be different. Now, some people have a really short road. Most people have a short road. Um, you do see a lot of um, improvement within t- the first two years after um, a brain injury. Um, but that, that should not depress anybody or bum them out if they're not 100% back to um, themselves after two years. Because we're finding out in research and uh, seeing anecdotally that people continue to improve and grow better and stronger as time passes. It's just that those improvements are just so, they're small and they're more spread out. What can people expect to learn from your book? Like if somebody maybe has a, has had a brain injury or has a family member or is a nurse working in neurology or just wants to know more, what is it that they're going to learn by reading your book? So my book starts out with common symptoms after traumatic brain injury. And it was really important for me to not just tell people the symptoms, but then what to do about the symptoms. Because there's, like I said, you know, one tra- a traumatic brain injury isn't the same as another traumatic brain injury. So therefore, the care of somebody who is suffering a traumatic uh, brain injury really is based on their symptoms. And so I do put some common symptoms in my book and the specialists to seek uh, for those symptoms. And then I have a portion of the book that talks about strategic tools and, comp- and compensatory strategies to help you kind of, it's really to protect the energy of the brain because once you've had a head injury, the brain doesn't run efficiently. And when it doesn't run efficiently, that means it takes more energy to do minimal things. Some people will even report after a brain injury that uh, they have to sleep after mm-hmm. taking a shower. So the brain does use utilize a lot of our energy, both. And with that being said, it will leave very little and it will take majority of the energy to try to heal because it wants to work efficiently. It wants to heal. But with that said, it's going to deplete your cognitive um, energy and your physical energy. And so a lot of those tools that I have is about protecting the brains, creating filters for the brain. So if you're light sensitive, I talk about wearing dark glasses and blue light blocking things that you can utilize, avoiding fluorescent lights. Natural light is much better to work under. If you have sound sensitivity, utilizing noise counseling technology to help you with your concentration and focus. If you are easily distracted by the movements of things around you, then creating barriers in your study area or your office to help minimize your eyes being pulled away. Because every time you're distracted, whether it's too much light, too much sound, too much movement around you, this is probably why your son didn't do so well in the classroom, right? It pulls your attention away and your focus away from what you're doing. That focus being moved from the task you're working on to the distraction and then getting back from the distraction back to the uh, task you're working on takes a ton of energy too. So if you can block a lot of distractions out, help maintain that focus 
and concentration, then the person's going to be able to have more energy to put on that task and be more productive. So I do talk about a lot of strategies and tools. And then I do talk about a little bit about financial things. Uh, One of the things that unfortunately happens, I've had it happen to me, I had a patient have this issue, is spending. You start spending more money than you're making. You lose the ability to budget because you um, either you can't comprehend your um, the amount of money you make and the amount of money you're sending out, or your money is not certain to come in because you're on disability and you don't know when that check's going to come and so forth. There's a lot of uncertainty with that. And that's difficult to put your brain around when your brain is injured. So I talk about the importance of managing finances. Sometimes head injuries are obtained through a third party uh, insurer. So if it's a workplace head injury or a, a car, such a car accident. If you think you should hire a lawyer, you should probably should hire a lawyer. The, and I talk about the advantages of that. And I talk about letting go. And that is a really important thing that processing needs to happen. If you get to a point in your healing and you realize you're not going to be 100% back to where you were before, you need to be able to let go of that past, your old self. And when you do that, then you're able to get to know the new you and your new brain and move forward and go forward with your new self-discovery. And that was something I went through on my own, not realizing what I was going through, but 2020 makes you realize, you know, the tools that you did use to get better. So just, yeah, letting go. I briefly talk about FMLA, the American Disabilities Act, and getting accommodations for your disability while you are at work or in school. And then the biggest thing I really wanted my book also to provide my readers with was hope. When I was going through my recovery, the the beginning of my recovery and, and, and halfway, I needed someone to give me hope to say things are gonna get better. Now you may not get back to your old self, but things will get better. And I just, you know, I just wanted to convey that. I think that is, it's wonderful that you've put all of this energy uh, and time, this commitment into writing this book. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. And I, I really would encourage you if you're listening to this and you, if you know someone who's had a traumatic brain injury, if you're a nurse who could potentially take care of someone with a traumatic brain injury, you just want to know more about it. If you've had a traumatic brain injury, you should definitely get the book. You, if you, if reading bothers you, if you've had a traumatic brain injury, or if you're going to buy it for someone else, you might want to do the Audible version. There is, it's on Amazon. You can buy it in print, but you can also buy the Audible version, which is the, the which I love audiobooks. So, and you can listen to it instead of having to, you know, to, you know instead of reading if that bothers you. So I would encourage you to do that and have this as a resource from somebody who not only is an expert in neurology and works in that setting and understands it from that point of view, but it's also lived the whole experience and, and has her own perspective personally as well. So thank you, Kelly, for doing that. It's amazing. Oh, it's my pleasure. And definitely my passion is helping others be the best that they can and to educate people to, so that they have the ability to make good decisions on how to take care of themselves. And this book was definitely a venue 
to do that. And I really enjoyed the process. And I'm really happy with the way it turned out. I wanted it to get straight to the point to help my reader. I didn't want a lot of fluff about my story in it, even though my writing coaches wanted a little bit of my story. And I'm like, I don't want to bore anyone. And and I also made sure that the chapters are really short to the point. You don't have to read the whole book to get help from it. You can read it each chapter. They're really short. They're broken up in small segments. So if you do get tired when you read, it's easy to pick up and put down. And then it has a list of to-dos at the end of the chapter just to remind you what you just read. So I really wanted it to be super That's easy awesome. to read. I too. love it. I mean, it's really, I would imagine it's probably you know rare to have somebody who knows so much about it from a clinical point of view, but who also has lived it. So you know what to focus in on, what to help people understand, what you struggled with, you know, and, and what potentially they could, you know, all the sides of it. I love it. So Amazon and Audible, correct? That's where they can find it. Oh, yes. You can download it on iTunes okay. too. It's at Barnes and Nobles, Pals Books. Yeah. Awesome. Super proud of you. That's awesome. Wonderful. Congratulations on that. That's great. Thank you. And of course, you guys know you can find me at at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can email me at Tina at goodnursebadnurse. I love hearing from you guys and social media at goodnursebadnurse. And I also like to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.